It's the DKB Radio Hour. I'm Spencer Cannon. This episode is brought to you by an educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated and is accredited by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine. Hepatitis C virus, or HCV, is a growing public health concern. Unlike other infectious diseases in the U.S., deaths due to HCV infection are actually increasing, and a resurgence of injection drug use has created an expanding pool of newly infected, often young people, who are not being tested or treated. These are your clients. You see them every day in your centers. The good news is that safe and highly effective treatments for HCV are now available. For the first time, Experts in HCV confidently use the word cure to describe the achievable endpoint of treatment. But many patients, as many as 50%, remain undiagnosed and untreated. Who are these patients, and how can we bring them into care? On our show today, expanding the circle of care for HCV. To receive CME or CEU credit, visit www.starthcv.dkbmed.com. Let's begin by listening as Dr. Mark Solkowski, professor of medicine and medical director of the Viral Hepatitis Center at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, puts a face on the epidemic, as he presented at the 2017 American Society of Addiction Medicine, or ASAM, conference in New Orleans. Here, He introduces a young woman named Teresa, who has contracted HCV infection through injection drug use. Teresa was someone I saw a few months ago in our hepatitis clinic. And I met her on a Monday morning. I see patients every Monday there. And there were a couple things unique about her from the get-go. The first is when I went to call her back for her appointment, she was with a baby, a child about one and a half years old, and a, a male partner got them back in the room. And the second thing that was unusual about her was she had driven two and a half hours into Baltimore. I'm at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. And in general, people don't like to drive into the city, particularly Baltimore, for medical care. So that was the second unusual thing. So when I started to talk to her, I I heard her story. And sometimes patients' stories really stick with you. Even years later, there's a patient you may have seen or a client you talked to that resonates. And what really stuck with me about her is her story. And maybe it's not that atypical, but her story starts when she's 16 years old in high school and she had a boyfriend. And good students, C's and B's, started to use oral opioids, started to take pills. Boyfriend got them from his parents' medicine cabinet. Then she injected heroin. And that went on, injecting narcotics for about a year and a half or so. Now, she was able to break free of that, got herself into an addiction treatment program, took buprenorphine for a while, emerged from that, got back into some classes at a community college, had a new boyfriend, a new partner, got pregnant, and had a baby. So all's good. She's got her life in a straight line now. But after the baby was born, she had a pretty interesting postpartum experience. So her young son got a bit jaundiced. Not uncommon. A lot of kids get yellow. They stick under the lights. That's pretty typical for newborns. But they also ran some tests and found out that her young son had hepatitis C. So he was antibody positive, which is hard to sort that out early at birth, but it was also virus positive. So she had that devastating news. Here she is. I've got a brand new son, hep C infected. But what was worse is they told her 
you know what? We think you should be tested because you're probably the source of your son's hepatitis C. She had never been tested before. She got tested. Hepatitis C positive, same strain of hepatitis C as her young son. And you know, that was a devastating moment for her. And one of the questions she had for me, one of the very first questions she asked me during our visit was, how come I wasn't tested earlier? Now, she never had jaundice, never got yellow, never had textbook symptoms of liver disease. She really felt well. She went through a couple of rehab programs, had seen her family doctor. No one had run a test for hepatitis C, although she certainly was known to have injected drugs, tried to be careful. And as far as she knew, her boyfriend at the time was hepatitis C negative. He said he was clean. Turns out he's got hepatitis C too, but that's a whole different story. So the question she asked me, and the one I haven't been able to quite answer is, why wasn't I tested? How come no one tested me? How come my OB didn't test me? How come my family doctor didn't test me? How come I learned of it this way? HCV was first discovered in the late 1980s as a cause of hepatitis in infected patients. The liver is the main target of HCV. Let's pick up with Dr. Solkowski as he describes the impact of chronic HCV infection on the liver. The human immune system has the ability to clear hepatitis C in 25 to 40% of people who get infected. The other people, about 75%, go on to a chronic condition. I think of this like a smoldering infection of the liver. They're asymptomatic. Clinicians generally don't pick it up based on what they report. And it causes low-level ALT and AST elevation, the kind of thing that often gets ignored in a busy primary medical practice. But these infections smolder for decades. I often hear patients say, well, how could I possibly have had this since 1970? And the reality of it is, that's the typical course of hepatitis C. The concern is this smoldering infection of the liver over time can lead the liver to scar. Fibrosis is scar tissue that's laid down very slowly and can lead to the cirrhosis of the liver. Now, cirrhosis condition where the liver is badly scarred, if one were to look at it, it looks nodular, and if one looks at a biopsy of the liver, it's got thick bands of scar. A cirrhotic liver is a lot like a car with 140,000 miles on it. Things start to go bad. And there's really several things that can happen. There's liver decompensation, ascites, bleeding varices, encephalopathy, and there's liver cancer. And in fact, liver cancer is one of the only cancers still rising in incidence today with rates that go up year after year being driven by hepatitis C. So this can be a very deadly disease that can certainly lead to death in many people. Keep in mind that there are actually multiple genotypes or strains of HCV. The prevalence of these genotypes varies geographically. In the U.S., genotype 1 accounts for about three-quarters of cases. Genotypes 2 and 3 are less common, while genotype 4 occurs even more rarely. Although the U.S. does not have the highest prevalence of HCV compared to other regions, we do see a significant and rising impact in terms of mortality. Here's Dr. Sokowski from the ASAM meeting. Now, if you look at 60 infectious pathogens, including HIV, TB, MRSA, and Zika did not make this list, this is the number one killer of Americans is hepatitis C. It kills more people than all these other pathogens together, about 20,000 Americans per year. 
Since 2007, more Americans have died of hepatitis C than HIV. The number of HIV deaths is 6,000 to 7,000, still too many. Hep C is 20,000 or more per year. Why is that? Well, HIV deaths are coming down. A lot of public health efforts to screen, link to care, and treat with highly effective antiretroviral therapy. Hepatitis C, as we'll talk about, we haven't done much of any of that. No public health effort, and until recently, very little in the way of treatment. But many of these deaths can be prevented by identifying and treating chronically infected patients with the highly effective new drug regimens. And many of these people are being seen in addiction centers. Think about that for a moment. Many of your clients, whom you work with daily, have undiagnosed HCV infection that, if left untreated, can make them ill and lead to their death. And that sickness and mortality will be caused not by their addiction, but by an infection that is curable. Of the 5 million or so Americans with chronic HCV infection, only about half know they are infected. Not knowing they have HCV leaves these people at risk for liver damage and early death. And it also allows for potential transmission of HCV infection to others. This leads to some major questions. For example, who is most at risk for HCV infection? Why are they not being tested? And how can we improve screening and linkage to care? Let's listen as Dr. Alan Litwin, professor of medicine at Albert Einstein College of Medicine, describes the epidemiology of HCV infection in the U.S. The majority of Americans who are infected with hepatitis C, about 70 Three quarters, 76, 77% are in the baby boomer generation. And these are people that were born between 1945 and 1965. And for many years, this is where the core of the epidemic, in terms of the hepatitis C epidemic, lay. What we're seeing more recently is an increase in hepatitis C infection now related to injection drug use among young people who inject drugs, specifically those who are 30 years and under of age. And, and this is happening both in the urban settings as well as non-urban, specifically suburban and rural settings. And this has really been fueled by kind of the change in the heroin epidemic. So in the 1960s, a typical heroin user was maybe 17 to 19 years old, the male today, a little older and much more likely to be female. In the past, 45% of heroin users were non-white, and now it's really 10%. 90% of new heroin users are Caucasian. It used to be mainly in the urban settings, and now it's happening in the suburban and rural settings. In the 60s and 70s, people, when they initiated opioid use, it really was with heroin initially. And now, because of the prescription opioid epidemic and the increased availability of prescription opioids everywhere, many young people have experimented with opioids and then have started with using pills and then have become dependent on the opioids and then transitioned as supply has gone down and there's been more control, more difficult to obtain these and have transitioned to cheaper heroin and began injecting it. And with that the prescription opioid epidemic, this is why we're seeing a rapid increase in hepatitis C among young people, really a three, fourfold increase in the last several years throughout the country, but most pronounced in, in Appalachia. These data tell us where to look for HCV infection, but how does this epidemic play out in communities? To find out, we turned again to Dr. Litwin. Okay, so let me speak more specifically of what we're seeing in many rural communities. 
Scott County is a perfect case study. Really, several years ago, really in 2011, we had discovered a cluster of hepatitis C cases in southeast Indiana that was linked to a prescription opioid epidemic. Again, people were predominantly Caucasian, both males and females, and there was really a skyrocketing of cases of hepatitis C found. Now, this was in a setting where there's very little access to kind of public health services. So there was inadequate HIV and hepatitis C testing, inadequate access to syringes. In fact, it was illegal for physicians to prescribe syringes. Syringe exchanges were illegal. And so it was a perfect environment, kind of a perfect storm for if HIV was introduced into this network, the HIV would take off. And that's precisely what happened in 2015 or so, where they found kind of a cluster of about 11 cases of HIV. And after further investigation and the CDC coming in and other public health uh, officials in Indiana found that there were over 150 cases that were diagnosed, 169 specifically, of HIV in six months. And more than 80% of these patients were co-infected with hepatitis C. Most likely, these hepatitis C infections preceded the HIV infections by several years. And so I think the overall lesson here is that when we see these cases of hepatitis see in these communities, and really even before that, when we know that overdoses are happening and that people are using drugs, we need to immediately institute a number of different public health interventions, which can range from offering testing programs that are free of charge for HIV and hepatitis C vaccines for hepatitis B, testing for HIV and hep C is important, but not sufficient. Obviously, we need to be able to link people to care. In many of these communities, there are no places that receive care. And so we need to be able to train primary care providers, whether they're physicians or nurse practitioners or physician assistants, know how to treat hepatitis C and HIV so we can decrease the community viral load. And then we need to make sure that there's ample access to syringes so that if people are using drugs, clearly if they don't have access to clean syringes and other equipment, they're going to, with time, become infected with various viruses, HIV and hepatitis C specifically. In addition, it's very important that we offer evidence-based drug treatment interventions specifically for the opioid epidemic. That's methadone and buprenorphine, which are very effective at decreasing drug use and decreasing transmission of HIV. And more recently, we've seen this with hepatitis C. Scott County really demonstrates how this disease can spread among people who inject drugs and share needles. And our patient Teresa shows that vertical transmission from mother to child is another real concern that is not being addressed. Here's Dr. Sokowski from the ASAM meeting. Now in Philadelphia, they looked at nearly 568 hep C positive women who gave birth and they asked the question, how many of their children got tested? Only 84. 5% of those children are likely infected. So there's a lot of children out there that were never tested. And unfortunately, the OB recommendations are not to test women during pregnancy. So these children and these mothers are missed during this time. What does this evidence add up to? In other words, exactly which patients should we be testing for HCV? Is there a right way of screening for HCV? And what do we do when patients test positive? Here's Dr. Sokowski again. These are the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force recommendations, and they are to screen every single baby boomer born between 45 and 65. Don't ask about risk factors. Look at the birthday. If it's 1950, they get a hep C test. Why? Because nearly 5% of the adults in that cohort are hep C positive. Any past or present injection drug use, even once, hepatitis C is very contagious. 
A single needle exposure is thought to be a 3% risk if that needle is contaminated, 10 times more contagious by needles than HIV. That's why Scott County, 500 with Hep C, 188 with HIV. Sex with an injection drug user, sexual transmission is uncommon, but certainly, particularly among MSM, men who have sex with men, it can occur. Any blood transfusion before 92, anyone with hemophilia who got factors before 1990, dialysis. Outbreaks are occurring in dialysis in the United States, even as we speak. With children born to hep C positive mothers, they should be tested. Incarcerated individuals should be tested. Intranasal drug use, there's some concern that that may spread hepatitis C, or it may be a marker for injection practices that aren't reported. Unregulated tattoos. I tell my kids not to get tattoos because of hepatitis C. Now the reality of it is we don't know how many people got hepatitis C through a tattoo, but even the inkwells can become contaminated and transmit hepatitis C. Needle sticks on the job, healthcare workers, and then surgery before universal precautions. A lot of the baby boomers I see say, well, but doc, I didn't inject drugs, why am I hep C infected? Well, think about it. Before AIDS in 1980, universal precautions didn't exist. And many people got hepatitis C through surgical procedures, through seeing a doctor. And in fact, around the world, that's how hepatitis C is spread in many countries. So now we know who we should be screening, but how do we actually diagnose HCV? Dr. Sokowski explains. So the diagnostic process is pretty straightforward. It's an antibody test. It's highly specific, highly sensitive. It's a blood test or a finger stick with a result in 20 minutes. If they're negative, they are hep C uninfected unless you think it's a new infection within a month. If they're positive, this is a new step, check a HCV RNA. 25% will clear infection. So I saw a guy a month ago who thought he had hepatitis C for a decade. No one had checked an RNA. I checked an RNA, it turns out he's negative. He doesn't have chronic hepatitis C. He spent 10 years thinking he was chronically infected. He was not. Antibody followed by RNA, RNA is positive, they have hepatitis C infection, and they should be referred for evaluation and consideration of treatment. What else should happen? Well, they should be assessed for alcohol use. CDC says everyone should get a screening and brief alcohol intervention, and in my opinion, there's no safe amount of alcohol in people hepatitis C infected. If hepatitis C is a smoldering fire in the liver, alcohol is like pouring gasoline on the fire. How much is too much? We don't know, in part because when we try to do surveys of alcohol, People don't always tell the liver clinic the truth about alcohol consumption, and we may underestimate exposures. People should be educated about transmission and harm reduction, and in my view, treatment of addiction goes hand in hand with an assessment and treatment of hepatitis C, and we'll talk more about that tonight. Now, one important point I want you to leave here with is that liver biopsy is not performed anymore. Your patient and any patient I see will not have a liver biopsy. That's not the standard practice any longer. We use blood tests. I like the FIB4. It's an equation that's based on age, ALT, AST, and platelet count. If you Google the term FIB, F-I-B-4, a calculator will come up, you plug the numbers in, and you'll get a score. If it's above 3.25, they have a bad liver. Less than 1.45, the liver's probably okay. I do this when I first meet people so I can assess where their liver stands. In our office, we also have the ability to measure how stiff your liver is using something called elastography or fiber scan. These modalities, blood test and elastography, have replaced biopsy. What are the next steps? Well, the next steps for persons with active hepatitis C infection, screen for hepatitis A and B immunity. If they're negative, vaccinate. 
A lot of people are not immune to hepatitis B in particular and should be vaccinated. And then all patients should be considered for treatment and they should be referred. I would encourage everyone in this room to, to try to find in your community a place you can send patients that will work with you to provide treatment and overcome barriers. So we're gonna talk more about the barriers as we get into tonight's session. Linkage to care is a critical next step after someone has been diagnosed. But in daily clinical practice, and especially in addiction medicine settings, things don't always go as planned. To illustrate, let's turn back to Teresa's story from the New Orleans presentation. So she was in the office, as you recall, drove about two and a half hours into Baltimore, there with her one and a half year old son. And I gotta tell you, it's, it's, there's a reason why I'm not a pediatrician, and that's because one and a half year olds in the office are not always that much fun. But she was there because she really wanted to be evaluated and treated for hepatitis C. She wanted to be free of hepatitis C so she could think about planning a family and moving on with her life. And curing hepatitis C is a very powerful step forward. Now, she had seen a doctor two and a half hours away from Hopkins who told her, look, your liver's in great shape. You don't need treatment. Well, of course your liver's in great shape. She was just infected three or four years ago. She's not lived with it for 40 years. And that's not a reason to defer treatment. So I told her, look, we'll, we'll do some tests. We did a elastography, a fibro scan in the office. We did genotype testing. We found out she had genotype 1, subtype A, the most common strain we see in the U.S., had a viral load that was pretty low. It was only about 500,000. And in general, viral loads run in the, the million to 6 million, even 10 million range. And she's a really good candidate for potentially eight weeks of treatment. So I told her, look, we'll get you moving forward with treatment. Very excited about that. Very anxious to move forward. Which makes the next part of my story a little bit confusing. So we put the prescription in through the pharmacy. And if there's one thing I really hate about hepatitis C, I love curing patients, that's a lot of fun. It's trying to get prior authorization. I mean, come on, really? I can stay at home for two hours while I try to talk to a medical director? So the thing we did, we got her prior authorization, we got approval for treatment. Now we have a kind of nice system at Hopkins where the specialty pharmacy will help us get the medications, and then we have nurses that will call patients. So we call her and say, look, we wanna say, look, your medicine's ready, leave a message. Never get a call back, call again. This time the phone's not active, the cell phone we've got in our computer system. Well, she had a follow-up appointment schedule. It was about six weeks after the first visit, no show. Now our nurses are really good and really dedicated. So they tracked down some relatives, eventually tracked down her aunt, and they talked to her aunt. Well, it turned out that she had relapsed into using. And, you know, I suppose we shouldn't be surprised, but I was, because I was really confident that she was ready to move forward and she had everything going straight. What it sounds like, though, I didn't recognize is that she had a lot of underlying depression and anxiety that wasn't being treated when she came out of her program. So in any event, we lost her to follow-up, and we were not able to get our treatment. As you've heard, evidence and guidelines tell us whom to test and how to test. So what's the problem? Why are 50% of patients with HCV undiagnosed? As usual in public health, the answers are complex. Barriers to screening are multifactorial and affect all stakeholders, including patients, providers, and the healthcare system itself. Some of these barriers were illustrated by Teresa's story, in which she started using drugs again and had underlying psychiatric issues that may have contributed to her dropping out of care. Also joining Dr. Sokowski in New Orleans was Dr. Kathleen Brady, 
distinguished university professor at the Medical University of South Carolina and director of the South Carolina Clinical and Translational Research Institute. Let's listen to Dr. Brady as she reviews patient barriers to screening in greater depth and strategies to overcome these barriers. In terms of patient level barriers, there is certainly stigma associated with HCV as there is with HIV. Individuals with addictions are known for their denial. We all know this is sort of pathognomonic of the disease. And so if they think testing for something is going to increase the stigma that they already feel, they're likely to just sort of deny that that's even a possibility. In addition, there's a lot of lack of knowledge out there. I think many drug users are unaware of the prevalence of HCV, just how prevalent it is, and what are the risk factors for um, having acquired HCV. They're also unaware of the potential harm and really mortality associated with it. And they're also unaware of improved treatments. And because of that, they have a lot of fear. I mean, treatment of HCV, even five to 10 years ago, is really different than it is today. So when addicts talk among themselves about HCV and what happens when you have HCV, they're talking about things they're fearful of, liver biopsy, long-term treatment with lots of side effects. So what can we do to overcome these patient-level barriers? Well, one of the things we need to do is normalize HCV screening. For goodness sake, if HCV screening is recommended for every person born between 1945 and 1965, it's something that is going to be pretty standard practice, and it should not be a stigmatized test. It is particularly helpful if we can have on-site testing at addiction treatment settings. And one of the ways that we can really encourage our patients to learn more about it and to ask questions and to talk to their providers about it is by providing posters and visual prompts and patient-centered educational materials addressing risk factors, prevalence, and treatment. The CDC website actually has a number of these tools that you could download to use in your own practice. And again, I think the greater education people have about this, patients have about it, the more likely they are to initiate the conversation that needs to be had. Providers can also get in the way of appropriate testing whether because of discomfort with the topic, insufficient time, or lack of support. To discuss these issues, we turn back to Dr. Litwin. From a provider perspective, there's the same barriers. Both primary care providers and specialists may not have adequate knowledge, believe it or not, around hepatitis C. They still may be having perceptions that a person who is actively using drugs or injecting drugs is not a candidate for treatment. Indeed, the guidelines said that many years ago, and they have been changed for nearly 20 years. But however, because the guidelines originally had said that, and because of the stigma and the sense that sometimes people are not worthy, people are denied treatment, or this is a thought that you must first cure the addiction, which is not curable, it's treatable, before we can proceed with hep C treatment. Now we know that HCV can be cured even in people who are still using drugs or on opioid agonist therapy. But as Dr. Litwin just said, some providers still don't know that the guidelines have changed and these people are eligible for care. But there are still more obstacles getting in the way. Dr. Litwin? Finally, the systemic barriers 
there's workforce issues that there's just not enough providers who know how to treat hepatitis C. And although it's become much simpler, one pill a day in many cases, in terms of the government barriers, there's just not enough funds. There's so much more funding for HIV than there is for hepatitis C. Healthcare systems are overburdened and fragmented. Primary care is in one place, psychiatry in another place, substance abuse somewhere else, and the hep C provider somewhere, you know, in a fourth location. You can't be everywhere at once. So not enough one-stop shopping models. Also problems with reimbursement for treatments, and although treatments have been quite expensive, they're coming down in cost quite a bit, and so there's no reason why they can't be covered for every American. Thankfully, there's many strategies to overcome these barriers, many focus around education, whether it's for the patient or provider, and then just general barriers in terms of different models like peer navigation and case management. I think we need to sensitize providers at all levels, from medical school to senior season positions, to let providers understand substance abuse and the related comorbidities such as hepatitis C, than to understand in a chronic disease model and not as a kind of a, a moral issue. There are a number of actions that can help prevent both HIV and hepatitis C outbreaks among people who inject drugs. And in terms of physician actions, we need to be screening all patients for both substance use disorders and mental health disorders that's often not done in primary care settings. We need to test patients and equally importantly, their sexual and drug injection partners for HIV, hep C, and other sexually transmitted infections. For people that test positive for both HIV and hepatitis C, we need to offer immediate linkage to care and treatment. We need to provide hepatitis B vaccines. Even one dose can be effective. We need to offer immediate referrals to substance use treatment programs that provide opiate agonist therapy, whether it's buprenorphine or methadone. Again, support screening and referral to free or affordable treatment for substance use disorders as well as infectious complications. And we need to be able to monitor kind of state HIV and hepatitis C epidemiologic testing data to identify and respond to outbreaks early. If we can do this ahead of time, we can prevent these outbreaks from happening in the first place. In part one of this series on HCV, we discussed the recommendations for screening, the importance of early diagnosis of HCV, and barriers to achieving these goals. Thanks to Dr. Sokowski, Dr. Litwin, and Dr. Brady. To receive CME or CEU credit, take the post-test at www.starthcv.dkbmed.com. Please join us for part two of this series in which we'll discuss some of the game-changing treatments that are now available to cure HCV and strategies to apply these treatments in the addiction medicine setting. I'm host Spencer Cannon, thanking you for your time.